Welcome to episode two of the Planning Life Insights of Brian, a podcast looking into the practical things you need to navigate your business through the UK planning system. We're getting a growing consensus from clients that there will be no V-shaped recovery, no consumers coming out of lockdown en masse, bleary-eyed and catching up quickly on spending, and huge government support, just bridge financing till everything gets back to normal by the end of the summer. Businesses are now planning for a longer haul. What does that mean for developers with planning permissions they're looking to implement or continue implementing in a market consumed by short and possibly medium-term volatility and uncertainty? Today, we'll be focusing on viability, planning obligations, and community infrastructure levy payments known as SIL. The Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government has issued updated planning guidance on some of that. My name is Sheridan Traeger, Senior Associate in the planning team of law firm Brian Cave and Paisner. And yes, after that introduction, it's clear why I'm rarely the one left to deliver bad news. But I'm joined by my cheerier colleagues who will help us find rays of light in the darkness. Claire Eccles, our team's dedicated knowledge uh, development lawyer, and Gemma Green, a first seat trainee in our team. Joining us in the fourth chair, the chair of hope, is Alex Vaughan-Jones, a partner in Geraldine's planning and development team. He's been advising developers and councils on financial viability matters for over 10 years. Alex and I have a wager to see whether his dog or my kids interrupt this recording first. My mummies and my kids are asking for a snack. They had lunch 15 minutes ago, so they'll be starving by now. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. As we covered in episode one, planning permissions have an expiry date you cannot extend to stop land banking. Keeping them alive so we don't lose out on some major schemes and keeping development going generally is going to be one of the keys to the UK's economic recovery. We know a lot of our clients initially focused planning on a three to four month interruption, but are now starting to plan for longer ahead. That means for some time, it's now not just a question of can we pull together condition discharge applications or can we carry our construction safely? If we're in a conserved cash mode, it's do we want to press the button on implementation and trigger some quite chunky 106 and still payments at all? Alex, what's your sense market for major schemes is now? What are the big players like the REITs and, and major house builders thinking? Uh, thanks, Sheldon. Well, I think that depends somewhat on the type of development you, you, you're working with and how much progress you've made so far. And if you're already under construction, and obviously this is, is going to going to of course significant and your priority is to remobilize work as soon as possible build efficiently and cost effectively within new social distancing guidelines and with an impacted supply of basic materials if you've got a scheme with permission but you haven't implemented then i'd say developers need to actively consider options for adding value and in reducing risk and increasing flexibility to those planning permissions where where, where necessary this will involve negotiations with councils, potentially to defer certain payments, and trigger dates through a deed of variation. And I'm aware of a number of authorities that we work with who've been proactive so far in offering, at least offering to open discussions on these at this stage. Of course, if you've got a scheme without permission, the lockdown is going to of course an inevitable delay in planning process, and it may also necessitate changes to design and other priorities. Having said that, I'm not scheme that Gerald Eve advising on as a firm that um, has actually is actually not still being actively progressed at this stage. Our experience is also that schemes are being progressed, but that there's a lot of analysis of the options to restructure schemes and their liabilities. 
So the focus for today is going to be schemes with permission, where developers are looking at ways of actively progressing, but in the face of, of various payments and trigger dates that for now could risk it, it not being worth pushing implementation forward. And if a developer has not yet implemented, this is against the background that there's still no legislation in place in England to automatically extend the life of a planning permission. So the clock is still ticking for a developer to decide whether to push ahead and implement a permission according to its inbuilt time uh, deadline. The Scottish Government has been ahead of the curve on this with the Coronavirus Scotland Act 2020. That provides for an initial six-month emergency period from the date of the Act and applies a 12-month extension to time limits for any permission that would otherwise expire in that emergency period. The Scottish legislation also allows for the emergency periods to be further extended by regulations. The updated MHCLD guidance you talked about doesn't mention extending permissions at all. There was a good insider view on this from uh, the man from the Ministry, Simon Gallagher, Director of Planning at the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government, uh, when he was interviewed on Have We Got Planning News For You, that the fantastic planning webinar with Sasha White, Charlie Banner and various other QCs. Gemma. Yes, well, he was, of course, asked the golden question about whether or not he was intending to extend the lifetime of permissions, and if he was going to do so, then when? And Simon acknowledged that he had heard this a lot from across the development industry, but he was explaining that he was finding that it was it technically quite tricky to do. He did say that he'd been kicking the idea around and discussing it with other lawyers, but he hadn't yet found a way of doing it via regulations in, in a way that's suitably automatic, i.e., you know, that gives the automatic certainty that, that developers really need during this time. He was saying that at the moment it was a practical problem of law, but he said he was still exploring the idea and still listening to those across the sector so that we should watch this space. And we think the legal problem as they see it is that they want to introduce primary legislation to be in place before the summer recess. And they're weighing up whether to introduce an automatic extension as Scotland has done or change the permitted development rights under the General Permitted Development Order 2015 to create a new class of permitted development that would allow development to be undertaken within a certain number of months after planning permission has expired. And they're also wondering whether any new provisions should apply retrospectively to permissions that expire before the summer. Uh, there are whispers that the concern about unforeseen implications you mentioned, Claire, is about habitat issues. Presumably, the longer the extension, the more the conclusions of the appropriate assessment could have changed on whether the project has an adverse effect on the integrity of, of the site or whether an assessment was needed in the first place. But Scotland seemed to think this was an issue. They'd, they'd only be looking to extend permissions for, say, a year. Does it really make much of a difference? Who knows? To, to break the impasse, they may not offer a blanket extension at all in, in real terms, but instead offer a scope for applying to local authorities to determine the implications of an extension in each case. And I doubt local authorities will welcome that just from a, a resourcing angle. Or maybe they'll have some kind of prior approval mechanism, as you do in permitted development rights for Office to Resi to filter out habitat issues. But that all helps with giving a bit of extra time to choose when to press the button on commencement. But who knows if the extension will be as long as however long there's uncertainty in the market. The more time goes on, the more likely you have you'll be to have to re-engineer your permission to take account of changing trends, especially if you're in hotels or retail or to accommodate the impetus behind built to rent, for example. It's not going to persuade you to incur the cost of pressing the button 
if you're a developer, unsure of what the future holds. So let's look at what's being done about mitigating the cost of implementing your scheme in terms of the planning contributions under 106 and still that fall due. Let's kick off with section 106. So taking a step back, what, what we're talking about first are planning obligations, also known as section, section 106 agreements. These are private agreements which local authorities can require developers to enter into with the local authority when the developer is seeking planning permission. And this is in order to make a development acceptable, which would otherwise be unacceptable in, in planning terms. It is different to a normal contract in the sense that the land itself is bound by Section 106 agreement. So it binds future owners and, and also that the council has enhanced enforcement powers. And that includes, say, for example, getting injunction to stop works if obligations like payments aren't met once they're triggered. And the focus here is on financial contributions, which you typically see before commencement of works or before stages of occupation of the development. Any examples? Yes, so to mitigate its impact, a scheme might need to make financial contributions towards community facilities, including around childcare, education and training, healthcare, police stations, you know, places of worship and, and other similar uses that provide a service to the local community. In terms of trigger for payments, this could be before all of commencement or all occupation or before stages of commencement or occupation, if, if that's more appropriate. And if we're speaking about residential development, it will be before numbers of dwellings are commenced or occupied. And the other key financial planning obligations are, of course, around affordable housing. As we all know, there's a housing crisis in the UK. Last year, I saw a National Housing Federation survey estimating 8.4 million people in England are living in unaffordable, insecure or unsuitable homes. Local authorities generally look to secure the provision of an appropriate proportion of affordable housing in residential and mixed-use developments on-site. But sometimes local authorities will accept what are called off-site contributions in the form of a payment in lieu where provision cannot practically be made on-site. And those affordable housing contributions might not just fall due before commencement or occupation. We won't go into it in too much detail, but in London and increasingly in other parts of the country, schemes which don't offer a certain percentage of new homes as affordable have to follow what's called the viability tested route. In mayoral guidance and in the London plan to be published in summer, development proposals that provide less than 35% affordable housing or 50% on public and industrial land are subject to late viability review mechanisms to assess viability at a more advanced stage of the development process to see if the scheme can deliver more affordable housing on site or a payment in lieu, as Claire mentioned, towards an off-site contribution. That's usually when 75% of the units are sold or let. Longer-term developments may also be required to provide mid-term reviews triggered before commencement of stages of the development. But what's come into pretty sharp focus is that schemes which have had to follow the viability tested route are also subject to early viability review mechanisms if they don't reach substantial implementation within a specified time frame. Examples we've seen have been substantial implementation within 24 months from grants of permission, uh, and, and that's very, it's very often bespoke to a scheme. So, for example, um, I did one with three resi blocks, uh, um, and to avoid early assessment, the developer had to achieve a list of site preparation works and the structural frame and core specification above ground level to at least first floor for any one of the three blocks. 
Some 106s for longer-term phase schemes even have a stop-start viability review to update the early-stage viability review if the scheme stalls for a year or more following an early-stage review. So lots of stages at commencement and afterwards with some quite chunky contributions, especially affordable housing obligations, can fall due. That's right, Sheridan. I'd say nearly all recent planning permissions for mid-last schemes in London, as well as most else, many elsewhere, will have an early stage review mechanism. And that's whether whether or not they went down the viability test route. It's 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 a tool. It's a tool used by the mayor to to sort of to promote early delivery. Having said that, there's a lot of headwind now in the in the in the in construction work that's on site. Um, some developers only got percent of workers on site and there's no point increasing that if you can't get hold of materials particularly items are imported like plasterboard i understand it's very hard to get hold of this will inevitably cause program delays in existing projects and additional financial burden and risk which all knocks on to the ability to commence new schemes on on previous schedules i heard one of your uh, gerald Eve colleagues say that plasterboard is the loo role of the construction industry yeah alex but at least you can yes. now buy loo roll. Um, um, but, but on early viability reviews, we've been hearing some developers are asking uh, boroughs to hold off granting permission, otherwise ready to go, just to get a bit of extra time on that 24-month substantial implementation to push back possible early viability reviews. I mean, that's creative, but clearly it's only a very short-term option. Can, uh, can you help us understand the concern? What would actually happen if these early or stop-start viability assessments were actually held in the middle of a COVID-19 recession. Is the problem that property prices and comparables on land values will go down, so the gross development cost goes down, leaving greater developer profit and more scope for affordable housing contributions? But what I'm not sure about is, won't the scheme income, the gross development value also go down? So what, 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 what's the concern here? Well, just, just to, just to... Paul, so if we go back on you, you, you touched on the principles of review mechanisms just now, Sheldon. But effectively, they they're, they're aimed to give a snapshot update of of scheme viability at a particular point in time. You can then see if there's been any improvement since the original assessment was carried out at the application stage. Um, there's a lot of individual bespoke mechanisms for these, but in general, either you're either you're looking at a formula approach, or you simply deduct cost increases since permission from increases in values or in more complicated schemes you you can have a, a, a reappraisal approach as well where you look at the look at the scheme as a whole including including um including all other aspects but in each case the principle is the same that if there is if there is an identified surplus then then an agreed share of that will be used to increase planning obligations or affordable housing up to up to policy compliant caps now the financial characteristics are obviously obviously different in each case, but broadly, I would certainly expect cost inflation to have exceeded value growth over the over the over the past past couple of years. Well, I mean that is the case according to, to most in most indices. BCIS enterprises in London increased by over ten percent in two thousand seventeen, for instance. Um, going forward, there's not too much expectation of value growth over the next two to three years and um, cost inflation still still expected at around a four percent level therefore yes it might actually be true a long way of going around to answering your question that, that that in some cases it might actually be in the developer's interest 
to, to to have an early review at this point um uh get it out get it out get it out of the way without locking in any uplift um the issue issue in that is is if you want to if you want to get on and develop its added delay i mean i'm going to go off on one here for a bit of a laugh but the more i think about it viability assessments in a volatile market seems to be like that scene in that clint eastwood film dirty harry do you remember he, he shoots a few bank robbers in a spectacular fashion he walks up to one of the guys who's, who's lying there wounded and he said and the bad guy's thinking you know do i reach for my shotgun and, and have another go at, at dirty harry clint eastwood says to him i know what you're thinking you know did i fire five to tell you the truth and all the excitement i've lost track myself but the handgun i'm holding is the most powerful gun in the world it would blow your head clean off so you've got to ask yourself one question do i feel lucky so so don't draw too many parallels from that but i i wonder <laughs> if taking a viability assessment on the chin now for a, for a developer you know an early viability assessment is, is basically a bit of a punt because you know COVID 19 could dampen down the cost inflation you mentioned yeah that's uh and you want to get going um this lockdown has been an immediate barrier to that and quite rightly you don't want any additional uncertainty and delay of a review preventing you you starting on site probably not a given you're not a given that costs will decrease because of because of because of the crisis although um demand might be hit as i said earlier the uh, impacts on supply are likely to be in material and and and, and, and other aspects is, is 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 likely to grow what what is sure is that values and costs are both likely to become more volatile, more move, more movement either way, and programmes are likely to likely to be extended, and this will increase risk development across all sectors. Unfortunately, for developers with more risk, I'm not aware of any examples of, of these review mechanisms being downward as well as upward. So the risk on the downside will continue to be wholly borne by the developer on permitted schemes. All, all the assumptions in the whole original viability assessment will also have to be. So I think it's, it's worth making sure your 106 doesn't pin down any values because I, have, I haven't had it myself, but on due diligence, I've seen a few uh, 106s where the local authority secured a benchmark land value that couldn't, that couldn't go below a certain floor figure in any of the future viability assessments. But of course, property prices might now have to be revisited. Let's just talk quickly about what commencement means. One of the key triggers for 106 is commencement, and there's a bit of a, wi a, a narrow window between what's enough on one hand to begin works and bank your permission to stop it expiring, and on the other hand, what 106s have as a commencement trigger for obligations on the other. Talk us through the window, Gemma. Sure, so under the Town and Country Planning Act, development is taken to have begun when any material operation comprising the development begins to be carried out. And there is a list of, of what this, this means. So to name a few, for example, any work of construction in the course of the erection of a building, any work of demolition of a building, or digging of a trench, which, which is to contain the foundations. And importantly, what you do, it, it can't be de minimis, so it can't be inconsequential. And it has to be in accordance with the plans for the scheme with all relevant pre-commencement conditions being discharged. So it's always worth running it by lawyers if you're unsure. And really, a certificate of proposed lawfulness from the council is the only real way to be definitive if you're not talking about a lot of work. And it's also entirely standard for Section 106s to be triggered on commencement of development, as Gemma has described, but where specified early works are carved out, for example, site clearance, demolition and remediation works, removing or diverting services or piling works, so that these works can be carried out 
without triggering the obligations under the Section 106. It's obviously highly fact-specific, and you'd really need to get legal advice in each case. But with careful drafting, there can be scope to implement a permission so it doesn't expire, but without triggering the commencement obligations under the 106, which in the current economic climate would provide a vital bit of breathing space for developers. The reason Claire and, and Gemma mentioned you know, legal advice is because there's, there's always a bit of fiddliness on, on this window between what the commencement uh, for the purposes of beginning a permission and triggering 106 obligations. Um, and, and I'm aware of examples where a developer to preserve an important permission has agreed with the council, look, if we do X, Y, and Z, that's, we agree that's implement. Let's have a certificate to propose lawfulness, uh, as, uh, as Gemma mentioned, so it's definitive in law enough. And then the 106 has specifically carved out these certified implementation works from triggering payments. The council saying specifically, we're happy for you to implement and bank your permission because it's so important for our area and we don't want it lost. And we don't need lots of these contributions yet um, because they're important. But, you know, you've just dug a massive trench and, and later on is, is, is when we'll need them. Um, and that might become more prevalent because I suspect there's a case for a lot of these contributions not, not necessarily being needed just for, you know, a spade being put in the ground. You know, they're there to, to mitigate the impact of the development as a whole, if we're talking about contributions. Um, Gemma, take us through the two routes to vary an existing planning agreement. I've got homeschooling on the brain, so I think the routes are like when you tell your kids, you know, there's, you can do this the hard way or the easy way. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so there are two routes to varying an existing Section 106 agreement, which has already been entered into. The more easy way is that a planning obligation may be modified or discharged by agreement at any time. But if you want to do it by agreement, you need the consent of all persons against whom the obligation is enforceable. And particularly, you need the local planning authority on board. So even the easy way means... You've, you've got to get a lot of different stakeholders on board if it's one of those complex, gigantic schemes, uh, potentially uh, with multiple developers or, or landowners. And everyone could suddenly raise their own issues and try for a second bite to the cherry, yeah, revisiting old, old, old issues. But that, that might be a small price to pay. And the perhaps harder route is that you can apply to the Secretary of State to modify or discharge a planning obligation. And you might go down this route if you don't have a constructive relationship with the local planning authority. But you will have to look at what purpose the obligation fulfills. Is it a useful purpose? And also, would the obligation serve that purpose equally well if it had effect subject to the proposed modifications? So it depends on the facts. If you're talking about deferral of a payment, the purpose could still be met, but it's possibly less straightforward if you're talking about reducing or removing a contribution. I suppose you could show the overarching purpose of the payment could still be met if a lesser sum uh, is, is still paid for the social infrastructure needed for the scheme. Exactly, and you have to wait five years from the date of the existing Section 106 agreement to apply. And, and don't forget that that five-year period was specially chosen to coincide with the life of an unimplemented planning permission. So the whole point was so a developer couldn't escape liability for payments required before commencing development unless the local planning authority agreed. So this route was basically designed not to be very helpful for what we're talking about. And if the local planning authority refuses to modify a Section 106 agreement within the five-year period, there's still the potential option of judicial review. But you'd be looking for the usual public law grounds to bring a claim. 
like was the local authority's decision irrational and it's a high threshold to pass and a potentially expensive option. I suspect um, scope to, to modify an obligation or judicial review can still help focus minds, but that's all, you know, that, that's all very negative. We're just talking about the legal options. I imagine authorities generally will be open to helping developments. They spend all energy giving permission to come forward. So I suppose the question is, does the updated uh, guidance, housing communities, local governments, make it more likely you'll get the local authority on board? And for what? It, it's all about deferral, not reduction of obligations. You'd expect so. The MHCLG guidance states that where the delivery of a planning obligation, such as a financial co contribution, is triggered during this period, local authorities are encouraged to consider whether it would be appropriate to allow the developer to defer delivery. And the guidance states that deferral periods could be time limited or they could be linked to the government's wider legislative approach and the lifting of silly easements. Deeds of variation can be used to agree these changes. And ultimately, the guidance says that this should help remove barriers for developers and minimise the stalling of sites. Okay, so, so that's uh, Gemma. Alex, will you just talk us through whether you see local authorities in the context of that advice, um, that guidance, being willing to, to vary obligations? Um, yeah, as, as I said earlier, there have been various expressions of support from local authorities, although not a great deal of the this yet has translated to anything formal. Um, in cases where LPAs have offered to reopen discussions on timing of payments, not yet clear whether this will be universally applied to all schemes or whether there'll be any requirements to provide evidence of reduced viability to get approval for any of these variations. In the London context, uh, the, the Mayor has recently written an open letter to Robert Jenrick, Community Secretary, advocating that the government should take a consistent approach to extending these these time limits and set that out in legislation. His proposal was that any time that elapses in a lockdown period should be automatically uh, added on to, to timescales and discounted from time limits. I suppose in, in terms of triggers for lifetime, lifetime, lifetimes of permissions, triggers for SIL, late payments. Um, we didn't explicitly mention trigger dates for review mechanisms, but that would be an obvious extension of it as well. I'd expect there to be I'd expect there to be further details of some form of measure, a formal planning bill on this from MHCLG in the near future. And I think that'll be a positive step to providing consistency and clarity for developers. I think that's right. And, and the, 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 the reason why the Mayor's written to the Secretary of State for communities and local governments is because the powers to change statutes are basically in the hands of government. And as we'll see in this podcast, some of those things are in train, uh, but mostly the measures aren't as advanced as the Mayor's letter aspires to. Government seems keen, I think, to see a demonstrable case for concrete issues that require the solutions being called for, taking it step by step. And they're wary a bit of unforeseen implications, and, and they often seem to kind of make a call for kind of evidence from, from the industry. So a part we can all play in, in helping move that kind of legislation forward. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, it, it's a two-way street on that. I mean, the, 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 there's much more resistance so far to any idea um, of developers trying to reduce the quantum of agreed obligations, especially affordable housing. Um, uh, measures for deferral, I think, I mean, if, if, they, if you're going to need evidence for everything before you, before you do it, then you're almost, you, you're almost too late in doing it. And I think, I think the argument for, for, the, for the deferral point is a bit stronger. Um, 
reduction of further reduction of obligation to affordable housing are going to be highly unlikely to be achievable unless there's a further statutory route along the lines of the section 106 ba provisions that were put in place after the after the previous financial crisis unsurprisingly given the established position of of the mayor and gla on affordable housing targets this is this is strongly opposed at this point by him and was set out as such in the, in his letter it'll take time but if the economic impact of the current situation is is worse worse than currently anticipated then some form of adjustment to these requirements may well be needed to to, to kick start new development well let's hope uh, we don't get there um so if we just take a back and just look at it at a strategic level the current assumption in the NPPF, uh, the National Planning Policy Framework, is that strategic viability cons considerations, key to the scale of affordable housing and other contributions, is supposed to take place at the stage that a local plan is being made. And that's all to avoid massive debate and viability later on as each application comes forward individually. To be fair, the NPPF says developers have the opportunity in their planning applications to demonstrate whether particular circumstances justify the need for a viability assessment at that application stage, whether the plan and the viability evidence underpinning it uh, is, is, is up to date is a key consideration, as well as any change in site circumstances since the plan was brought into force. Um, Alex, presumably a COVID-19 recession could be something that shows viability evidence under the local plan is not up to date. Yeah, I think that's right, Shannon. And the, as you say, the MPPF and PPG both advocate dealing with viability at the plan-making stage where possible. And this is on developers to justify why, 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 why they need a site-specific assessment. I mean, as we as as we find, area-wide assessments can't take into account that many site-specific factors by their very nature. And so, any schemes of any scale or complexity, um, certain, um, certainly of. of, of size we're talking about that end up in front of the mayor then the barrier is pretty to be able to justify why assessment is needed in any case um, in terms of the impact of COVID-19 there's there's a requirement in professional guidance that all area studies should clearly set out sensitivity testing of different scenarios of the market say a lot of a lot of these studies are quite light on on this side and and, and probably fall down in under testing downside scenarios. So the economic effects of COVID-19 would in those cases add add further justification, which isn't isn't difficult to get anyway uh, for, for submitting viability evidence at the application stage. So let's uh, wrap up on, on, on 106. I think where we've ended up on, on section 106 agreements is if you're a developer and you're worried about your scheme stalling because of planning obligations, you know, you reach out to the council as soon as possible and you show why you'll be affected and see if you can agree the deferral of obligations to allow implementation or just later payments in a way which still mitigates the impact of the development. It'll end up being documented in a deed of variation. There may be scope for exploring reductions in obligations uh, and you'll need to get all the relevant landowners and their mortgagees, etc., on board first. Let's dive into the fun bit the Community Infrastructure Levy, or SIL. So SIL, Community Infrastructure Levy, it's, it's a charge which can be levied by local authorities on new development. And it's for local authorities to use to help them deliver the infrastructure needed to support development in their area. The levy only applies in areas where a local authority has consulted on and approved a charging schedule which sets out its levy rates and has published the schedule. 
the amount payable, so the chargeable amount, is determined on the basis of that charging schedule. Still is payable in respect of chargeable development. In this case, development includes anything done by way of or for the purposes of the creation of a new building. Chargeable development is the development for which planning permission has been granted. If the development is pursuant to a phase planning permission, whether that's a full planning permission or outline, each phase is a separate chargeable development. Still is payable either by a person who has by notice assumed liability to pay, or if no one has assumed liability, there's a formula for splitting liability between the owners of certain interests based on the relative values of their interests. And if I can just jump uh, in there, um, Gemma, a developer wants to assume liability because if, if you want to benefit from payment windows and installments, uh, you've, you've got to do that uh, and you've got to do it before developments commenced. Yes, exactly. And where a person has assumed liability to pay SIL, that person becomes liable to pay SIL on the commencement of the chargeable development. Now, that point is pretty key, as we'll see, and the definition of commencement, the trigger for SIL liability, is the same as uh, what you described, uh, Gem, for when a planning permission is commenced, but it hasn't got the various carve-outs you can get in a Section 106 as, as Claire commenced. So there's not going to be enough to bank the permission without triggering SIL. There, there, there isn't going to be that, that kind of narrow window that uh, Gemma and Claire talked to. Claire, you're going to talk us through paying in installments. And I, I know SIL is key to, to funding much-needed infrastructure, and there's no equivalence. But I've been watching The Irishman on Netflix, so to keep up listening to interests, Claire, how, how do you feel about talking to installments in like a Joe Pesci impression? <laughs> well, that would definitely add interest to how bad it would be. So <laughs> I think I'll spare you this time. Uh, but installments will be set out in the demand notice explaining the payment dates. Where a charging authority wishes to allow payment by installments, they must have published an installment policy on their website. The authority has freedom to decide the number of payments, the amount of each payment and the time due, and the authority may revise or withdraw the policy when appropriate. Where no installment policy is in place, someone has assumed liability and a commencement notice has been submitted, then payment is due in full at the end of 60 days after the intended commencement date. Where no one has assumed liability, as you said, but a commencement notice has been submitted, then payment is due in full on the intended commencement date. So this is one of the measures that the, uh, the government guidance is proposing. Uh, if SIL charging authorities can bring into effect a new instalment policy at any time, uh, it suggests to authorities that they could take advantage of existing powers to introduce new installment policies for as yet uncommenced chargeable development. For phase development, as each phase is a separate chargeable development, later phases that have not yet commenced could be subject to a new installment policy. But any new installment policy will only apply to chargeable developments commencing after the new installment policy comes into effect, so it's not retrospective. Gemma, how quickly can authorities get out a new installment policy if, if they're so minded? Well, I mean, te technically pretty quickly. They just have to publish an installment policy on their website, setting out the date on which it takes effect, the number of installment payments and the amount of pro or proportion of SIL payment payable in any installment, when the installments are due, and any minimum amount of SIL below which SIL may not be paid by installment. Also, they can't just bring into effect a new instalment policy if the old one is younger than 28 days old. And that's to stop, you know, chopping and changing all the time. Thank you. Let's look at the basics of SIL enforcement before we look at what government guidance says about easing up on that. Go on, Gemma. 
So a council can choose to levy a surcharge on late payments, and that will be 5% of the outstanding amount where payment is still outstanding after 30 days, 5% where payment is still outstanding after six months, and then 5% where payment is still outstanding after 12 months. So, so that's, that's the Joe Pesci impression. Well, Gemma, but, uh, you know, you, you, fair enough, you've got to pay your taxes. So in cases of persistent non-compliance, collecting authorities may take more direct action to recover the amount due. You know, for example, they can issue a community infrastructure levy stop notice, and that prohibits development from continuing until payment is made and the stop notice is withdrawn. And the, the key thing to remember on all of this is whether and when to levy these surcharges or take these enforcement actions is at the discretion of the council. And the MHCLG guidance tells authorities that they're encouraged to consider using this discretion only where appropriate given COVID-19. That's right. But remember that late payment interest on unpaid sale accrues automatically, starting from when payment is due, at an annual rate of 2.5% above base rate. Authorities have no discretion to disapply the accrual of interest. So the government proposal is to help small and medium-sized developers by introducing amendments to the SIL regulations to allow charging authorities to defer payments, to temporarily disapply late payment interest, and to provide a discretion to return interest already charged where appropriate for developers that have an annual turnover of less than £45 million. And SIL regulations are subject to an affirmative resolution procedure, and, and it requires debate in Parliament. So it may not be as, as soon as we'd hope, but it is worth noting that local authorities are, are expected to give weight to the MHCLG guidance. And also, you know, the government's clear intention to legislate to use their enforcement powers with discretion, it should provide some comfort to developers that, where appropriate, they're not going to be charged extra for matters that were ultimately out, outside of their control. Gemma, what, what insight did Simon Gallagher give on MHCLG's thinking on this when he spoke on have, have We Got News For You? Well, well, Simon said that this was further evidence of, of them listening to concerns across the development sector. And he noted that there were a lot of cases where there were very short-term big cash payments that were being triggered just because of the way that the SIL regulations worked. And Simon acknowledged that there was a case for deferring those payments to keep the cash in the business and particularly those smaller businesses in order that they could you know, carry on functioning at all. He was also asked, you know, what, what's the magic behind the £45 million turnover figure? And Simon emphasised again that they're mostly concerned with these small businesses, and particularly because the 2008 crash was, was tough on, on the small development industry. And he also said that the £45 million figure mirrored other Treasury schemes that have, have been announced more broadly. So if you're a larger developer, you could benefit from civil authorities changing their installments policy or agreeing not to enforce with these hefty surcharges or stop notices. But the MHCLG guidance is clear that this 2.5% late payment interest will remain mandatory. It's not that big an issue if there's a new installments policy in place in time that's changed when the payments are due. But what interests me is none of this reduces how much SIL is payable. Alex, do you think that giving large developers the same benefit of the doubt on the 2.5% late payment interest really makes much difference. Does deferral make much of a difference? Uh, I think it adds uh, unnecessary complication to any proposals to, to, have this, to, to have this turnover limit. Um, I mean, how it plays out in practice would be interesting given identity of actual applicants who are often 
specific vehicles for specific developments don't I wouldn't necessarily relate directly back to to the to the um to the to the larger underlying developer also large developers aren't shielded from these impacts any more than small or medium sized ones um in any case and and large scale developments have larger scale sill liabilities in general and you're also right that deferral of this deferral of a any part of the sill liability is unlikely to make many non-viable schemes suddenly viable. Um, legislation is likely to be made in due course, um, so these payments can can be delayed. So uh, I'm interested in how far COVID-19 will, will shift the sill balance between funding infrastructure uh, and impact on the viability of, of development. At a strategic level, I heard it said you know, very insightfully on a, yet another great Landmark Chambers webinar that developers will find it increasingly important to get involved in the examination of sill charging schedules as viability is key, and, and they might start doing it in kind of collective groups. Do you think it'll happen, uh, Alex? And, you know, sill charging schedules aren't introduced overnight. So will that happen more, or do you think developers will just be told, look, no one knows that COVID-19 will only be a short-term problem, and why should a long-term sill charging schedule infrastructure contribution for, for years until the, you know, the next charging schedule just because of sudden uncertainty and volatil volatility. It reminds me of, maybe of what um, the GLA used to say when the 35% affordable housing requirement first came in. They said if a scheme can't uh, deliver 35% affordable housing, they really, really can't, um, and, and it can't do so without becoming unviable, then, then we're happy for those schemes to drop away. Um, and that's the price we're willing to pay just to entrench 35% into the market. Will people say the same kind of thing about sale, or you think it's pushing it too far? Uh, well, I think, think I think it probably is. There is, um, I've worked on a number of sale charging schedules and submitted representations developers for um, an awful lot more. And in my experience from that, there's the 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 barrier of acceptance at the examination stage is quite low for 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 the rates that are in the draft charging schedule. I find it's very rare that these actually get changed as a result of viability-based representations at examination. Therefore, it always has been the case, and it would say even more, that uh, it's important for developers to get involved at the earliest possible stage in the process, i.e. During the, during the stakeholder consultation stage prior to any, prior to the release of the draft schedule. That's the time to get get uh, points across and influence made. Exactly the same principle applies for seal schedules as for the area-wide studies we were talking about earlier, and and they should all include rigorous sensitivity testing upside and down to to test test their applicability over the the over what what could be two could be two or three development cycles. We're going to turn now to some tips on thinking about seal. We're looking at a consenting strategy if developers need to re-engineer their scheme given COVID-19. Uh, so I wanted to just say a word on phasing a development under a planning permission to split out sill liability. For that to work, the planning permission has to be granted with express reference to phases. Or if you're going to apply to make a non-material amendment to clarify that there are phases in your scheme, you need to do it before you trigger sill by commencing your works. And I say this because there was a high court judgment in February over the states, South and Northeast Somerset. Uh, a developer got an outline permission with all matters reserved. No mention of phasing really anywhere. A reserve had an approved drawing called a proposed phasing plan. Proposed. 
showing the scheme split into three. The developer then commenced development and triggered an 800k SIL liability, and the council issued a demand notice saying, thanks, you've got to pay it all. And the developer said, but hang on a second, our scheme's phased. We should only pay SIL for the first phase. And the developer said, we're going to put in a non-material amendment, Section 96A application, to get that proposed phasing plan in the reserve matters of, of, of approval made an actual approved phasing plan. And the plan was approved. So I'm not sure of all the background to this, but the council then said, well, hang on a second, you know, we, we're still expecting the full payment of, of £800,000 worth of SIL. And the developer said, well, no, hang on a second, uh, you know, we're still paying for just the first phase. This all went to court, which held that the permission at the time of commencement had not expressly provided for development to be carried out in phases, which is what the SIL regulations require. The, the phasing plan was just a proposed document, it wasn't really definitive. The non-material amendment under Section 96A that would have made it definitive was too late because the full sum had already been triggered on commencement before the Section 96A change. The permission on commencement of development can't change this position. So it's worth developers checking their permissions are actually properly expressed to be phased. And if not, if you haven't commenced, put in a Section 96A application to clarify. And if you have commenced, it's, it's time to reach out to the Council to talk about uh, informal deferrals. Without going into it in too much detail uh, just now, there is an abatement procedure to avoid the possibility of developers being charged twice for SIL for a revised scheme on the same site if they have implemented their original permission, but they then vary it under Section 73 or they, uh, they get a new permission. So if a higher amount of SIL would apply to the Section 73 or, or new permission, developers can claim a credit for SIL that has already been paid. Um, but also a couple of things to remember, don't get the benefit of abatement if you go for a retrospective planning permission under Section 73A, i.e. planning permission for development that's already been carried out. Also, if you are applying for a new permission, abatement does not apply where buildings under the original permission have been completed. And you have to make sure that the abatement request is submitted before development under the later permission commences. I must say, the more you talk about this, the more obvious it is that uh, developers really need to bake an approach to SIL into the consenting strategy before they start, because sometimes things become, you know, unfixable or almost unfixable if you try, if, if, if you don't. Exactly. Also, be careful if you're in an area which had no SIL when you got your original permission. If you re-engineer your scheme slightly, and go for a Section 73 variation of that original permission, you're fine. You get credited the amount of SIL for which you would have been liable on the original permission if SIL had been in force. But if you go for a fresh new permission to revise your scheme, you get no credit and you've got to pay for all the floor space. There's no rationale to this, as I see it. It's getting better, but the SIL regulations basically don't always anticipate how developers actually use the planning system. That's right, and that's something that last year's Court of Appeal decision in the case of Finney and the Welsh Ministers brought into sharp focus. This was a case which had led some local planning authorities to look carefully into the scope of what you can lawfully change under Section 73 versus having to get a fresh plan permission. This still really is something you should get advice on when formulating a consenting strategy. Alex, any final thoughts? Um, that's a really good point about uh, locking in a Amazing strategy for SIL at the application stage and how important that is. Um, and otherwise, no, just to just to add, I, I mean, I think we 
we are still at an early stage in terms of knowing where the development industry is heading as a result of COVID-19. Um, measures for deferral of payments may well help in the short term, but I'd expect, expect a number of schemes are going to need to be reconfigured or renegotiated with, with local authorities to ensure they're still deliverable. That process is always going to take time. Wise words as ever, Alex. I think we'll wrap it up there for now. Thank you for listening to the Planning Live with Brian. You've been listening to the fantastic Alex Vaughan-Jones of Gerald Eve and Claire Eccles, Gemma Green and me, Sheridan Traeger of BCLP. You'll be hearing from us again and the Planning Life Insights of Brian will return with more on what you need to know about the planning system in these interesting times. We wish you all the best through the ongoing social distancing measures. May your washing machine, fridge, kitchen sink never require emergency call out in lockdown. May you not need dental treatment until practices open in June. May you never have to homeschool more kids than there are parents available. And may your friends make only honest representations on social media about how lockdown is going for them. Keep well and keep safe.